1: Good evening, everyone, we have a lot to get to in the next hour, including new subpoenas from the January 6th committee later today and President Biden's warning to Vladimir Putin if he escalates his aggression against Ukraine. But first, let's talk about something that matters to all of us, especially those of us who are blessed to be parents, our children. In recent years, we've spent a lot of time listening to outraged conservative parents screaming about what masks are doing to their kids, We've heard them complain that Michelle Obama's biography should be banned because it promotes reverse racism or demanding that *Mouse*, a book about the Holocaust, or books about LGBTQ kids be banned because they make them uncomfortable. We've all seen the videos of ragey right-wing parents at school board meetings.
2: No mask mandates. My child, my children will not come to school on Monday with a mask on. All right. That's not happening and i will bring every single gun loaded and ready to many kids this
0: content is shocking um it's confusing and it's even disgusting to them and honestly i feel like it should be to you too
3: we're desperately trying to defend our kids from ideologies that seek to divide them rather than unify them that's why we're fighting CRT and equity practices of course
1: these supposed grassroots efforts in scare quotes, aren't really grassroots. I mean, they never are. As we've mentioned before on this show, they are driven by Republican strategists, activists and think tanks, national Republicans devoid of actual ideas who are looking to get out the Republican vote by feigning deep, deep concern about the kids.
0: We also have to uh, protect people uh, and protect our kids uh, from some very pernicious uh, ideologies that are trying to be forced upon them.
4: I think it's been tragic to really watch what's happened across this country, especially to our children. We've got kiddos now that they don't know life without masks. But, okay,
1: a question. Where is that same energy for these actual dangers to our kids?
5: This is an NBC News special report.
0: Here's Lester Holt. Today We're coming on the air from New York uh, with word of a school shooting at an elementary school in Fairfield County, Connecticut. There have apparently been many casualties. Breaking news tonight. It has happened again. Another deadly mass shooting at an American high school, this time in Florida. Tonight from Santa Fe, Texas, it has happened again. Another massacre at an American high school. This country's latest deadly school shooting at a high school north of Detroit. Federal authorities investigating bomb threats made it more than a dozen historically black colleges and universities.
1: All these Republicans who are claiming to be just so concerned about the kids. Ron DeSantis was an incoming freshman congressman when Sandy Hook happened. Where was his concern then? And you know what's tragic, Governor Christie? Noem? The kids across the country have no idea what it's like to go to school without the prospect of an active shooter showing up. I, for one, am eagerly awaiting all of your legislative proposals, other than thoughts and prayers, that address this urgent threat to our kids, since you care so much about protecting the children. And I know when you folks want to do something, you do it. Take, for example, these other Republicans who want to trigger the libs. You remember these pictures of Representatives Lauren Boebert and Thomas Massey? How does cosplaying with the weapon of choice of school mass murderers in matching outfits protect the children? I mean, do you leave those firearms just laying around the house where the kids can get to them? And maybe, just maybe, if Republicans cared about the kids, they could muster the courage to pass a new assault weapons ban, just like the one that Joe Biden got passed back in 1994, you know, the assault weapons ban that Republicans allowed to expire. Unfortunately for actual accountability... Parents and kids are they're on their own when it comes to school shootings, except that today, for the first time in American history, a gunmaker is actually facing consequences for a school shooting with the families of the 2012 Sandy Hook Elementary Massacre reaching a 73 million dollar settlement with gunmaker Remington, the company that manufactures the AR-15. Now, it is hard to overstate how big of a deal this actually is. Gunmakers are generally shielded from liability due to laws passed just for them. But these families found a workaround arguing that the gunmakers sales and marketing practices violated Connecticut state law. The complaint argued that Remington's militaristic marketing promoted the image of its AR-15s as combat weapons used for the purpose of waging war and killing human beings. And that it targeted high-risk users in particular, you know, like the teenage gunman who killed those kids at Sandy Hook. Moments ago, President Biden applauded the decision and urged other victims to follow suit, saying, quote, this progress is the result of the perseverance of nine families who turned tragedy into purpose. They have demonstrated that state and city consumer protection laws provide an opportunity, to hold gun manufacturers and dealers accountable for wrongdoing, despite the persistence of the federal immunity shield for these companies. And joining me now is Nicole Hockley, CEO of Sandy Hook Promise, who lost her six year old son, Dylan, in the Sandy Hook shooting, and Glenn Kirshner, former federal prosecutor. Thank you very much for being here. Um, and I, I want to start with you, Ms. Hockley. You know, and, it, you know, condolences mean nothing. You know, I, I'm a mom, so I. <laughs> I'm going to try to get through this without bursting into tears talking to you, but I want to congratulate you all for staying in that fight. And, and the thing that I found really interesting about the way you did this fight is that you guys weren't backed down by the fact that these immunity laws protect these gun manufacturers. You said, no, it's the way they marketed it. And then you also asked for something important. You wanted the records, the internal records. Please tell us about that.
2: Well, the records are what is going to help create change. I think by bringing public awareness to the thinking behind the sales and marketing strategies, why they were using these images of, you know, you can't be a man unless you have an AR-15 and how they were targeting people. This is what's going to create change. And, and when I mean change, I mean their business practices. It's not going to stop the manufacturer of firearms that wasn't the purpose of this lawsuit it was to ensure that they were more accountable and responsible for the way that they were marketing these products because these these are we need to be thinking about safety when we're
1: talking about who are marketing and who's buying these firearms yeah let's play, let's show one of them because this is a um, an ad you know one of the, sort there it is, consider your man card reissued, right? So it's, it's not just, um, to stay with you, Miss Hockley, it's not just the fact they're doing them, you know, it's the fact that they're doing them and saying that having this is a way to have your man card reissued. So if you're a young man who's troubled, who's feeling, you know, whatever anxieties are related to sort of your masculinity, et cetera, this is marketing to you. Is that, is that the argument that you guys are making?
2: Absolutely. And when we look at some of their other marketing campaigns, even where they're, they're encouraging people to turn in their friends, you know, under the banner, Jeffrey's a crier. So anyone who is showing any sort of femininity, perhaps you should turn them in so that we can market an AR-15 to them. This is, this is just wrong and targeting people. And and they even use terms in their internal documents about military wannabes. This is who they're marketing to. This is the insight they were using. On the one hand, it's brilliant marketing because it's tapping into the psychology. But in terms of its recklessness and irresponsibility, that needs to be held accountable. And because they thought they were immune, they thought they could get away with it. And
1: that's what changed today. Yeah. And and, let me bring you in, Glenn, because, you know, and let me show you this. I mean, this was the, the now lieutenant governor of Virginia. You know, this is a it is used now as almost an accessory by conservatives to say a certain thing about them. Now, this this woman, you know, is a military veteran. She's supposed to understand and respect firearms, but she's using it as a way to say something about herself, right? To say, I'm one of you. It's become a cultural item. And, you know, the the firearms industry has been really very tactical. You know, if there are incidences, let's say, of, you know, a, a major, a big rape case comes up, they start marketing pink guns and saying, hey, women, put that in your purse. They sort of they're always sort of target marketing as ways to expand the sales. Right. And the NRA, that's what they do. They're just there to boost gun sales. And, you know, there are there are capitalist, capitalistic enterprise. But OK. But what do you make of the fact that these parents found a way around these special loopholes that protect the firearms industry?
5: Yeah, Joy, uh, this settlement is really important for a number of reasons. First of all, a settlement in a civil suit is generally not any kind of precedent. It's certainly not legal precedent, but, you know, this one is what I would call atmospheric precedent because I do think it's going to encourage other families who, who lost loved ones to gun violence, to consider bringing suits against gun manufacturers. So, But, you know, there was also a little piece of legal precedent that came out of this case. As you mentioned, back in 2005, there was a federal law put on the books specifically to protect gun manufacturers against being held accountable when their weapons were used for mass destruction. Um, And as you say, these litigants found a way around it. In 2019, during the pendency of this case, the Supreme Court refused to step in and put a stop to this litigation. So I think this is atmospheric precedent that should encourage more victims of crime and their families to consider bringing these suits against gun manufacturers. And there is at least a little slice of legal precedent supporting a litigant's ability to do that. And look, as long as segments of our nation continue to worship at the altar of unrestricted gun rights, I mean, there have to be some tools to combat this, and this settlement now provides one of those tools.
1: And 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 I think to be clear, like the idea isn't to say you know that anyone who owns firearms is, is a terrible person. It's saying that. That the way that the marketing is done, there's something off about it. We showed that ad. This is a Washington Post piece. This is about AR-15s and video games. Um, It says, the weapons popularity has been enhanced by the AR-15s regular appearances in hugely popular first-person shooter video games, such as the Call of Duty series, and by its omnipresence in action movies. A gun industry trade magazine, shooting sports retailer, advised gun shop owners to be aware that many new buyers are coming to the rifles through their love of violent Video games. Uh, to come back to you, Miss um, Hockley. W- Would you like to see something done by the gaming industry, which is super popular? My kids are gamers, they love it. To to sort of also kind of be in on saying, look, if you're a troubled kid and you're using these games as a way to sort of work out something that might become really violent, is there something you think that that industry could do to maybe be more helpful? Or that, you know, what would you like to see done beyond just the companies like the now bankrupt Remington? (laughs)
2: The gaming community is a very important social community. And I think there's a lot of opportunity there for that community to lean in and help each other out. And perhaps that's through revising what they do in terms of product placement or revising how they help each other through these things. I mean, there's a lot of kids that go to the gaming community, perhaps because that is the only community that they can find where they feel included. However, where there are at-risk individuals there that are learning how to shoot uh, specific guns very appropriately. Um, that is where I think the gaming community can make a difference, and I'd love to see them lean into this and also take responsibility and be responsible to their
1: users and their the kids that really go there. You know, and there's something bigger here, Glenn, because you know, obviously, there have been shoot 'em up movies and video games. These things have existed forever. Like this, isn't causing people to be different. There's something about American society that is. Is violent encouraging? And I don't know what that is or how we fix it. Um, but should other industries be looking at this lawsuit and saying, uh oh, <laughs> right? Because if the idea is that the promotion of violence itself becomes something litigatable, should other industries be thinking about the way they're operating and product placement and things like that?
5: Yeah, I think part of the problem is, and you put your finger on it, Joy, there are politicians who are running around, you know, accessorizing with firearms. And, you know, I don't know in what view of the world that's appropriate conduct for A responsible adult and the message that that sends. But the other thing is, look, you know, the Supreme Court is generally expanding the Second Amendment right to bear arms. So we probably can't look to the Supreme Court to cut that kind of thing back. But what we can look to is the profit margin of the gun manufacturers. Remington, as you say, is now basically defunct because of this $73 million payout. And when you can make, make it not, not profitable for the gun manufacturers to pump out these deadly assault weapons, nobody's trying to ban shotguns or pistols for target practice, but you know, assault weapons, if you can make it not profitable, then maybe you can have an impact.
1: Yeah, I, I love, final question to you. I want to put up a Frank, Frank Guttenberg, um, who lost his, his beautiful daughter, um, Jamie, um, in the shooting in Parkland, not far from where my kids grew up, um, in Florida. He wrote, four years ago, my beautiful daughter Jamie was murdered by a student with an AR-15 in school. She was likely reading a book. Four years later, the Florida legislature is working on banning books while trying to make it easier to get guns. Less books, more active shooter drills. Um, and a Twitter user replied to this cartoon, replied with a cartoon originally made in 2016, which I think we can put up and show that. Um, I just want for you to speak for this community, because unfortunately, having covered a lot of uh, violence and the families that survive it for their, with, you know, the, the surviving families, these become communities. These become fraternities and sororities not of choice. So for, to speak from your community, um, the, the Sandy Hook community, what do, you, what do we need to do to be more supportive of you? What can we do as a society to be better and make things better for you guys?
2: You know, I think, I think the important thing is to lean in and not be afraid to use your voice and speak up. Uh, too many of us in this community have only become active in gun violence prevention because of the loss of someone that we hold so dearly. And I understand that no parent can really imagine what it's like to lose your child under these circumstances. It, it is impossible to fathom. All I can say is you don't want to be part of this community. It is not a pain that you want to live with every day, no matter where you live, no matter what your experience in life is. But if you lean in and be part of the solution, if you lean in and take action, speaking with your kids, working with them, working with your community, there is hope. And we're just pulling every lever we can to create a safer future. And it's it's something that we can
1: all be part of. Indeed. Well, uh, I am. we I think we, as a community, the Readout community, we are so proud of you. Uh, we are. We are holding you in prayer. You are in our virtual arms. So thank you for all that you do to advocate, um, Nicole Hockley of Sandy Hook Promise. God bless you, uh, and thank you for all that you do um, in your family. Um, Glenn Kirshner is sticking around, and I'm going to get through the rest of this show without crying. <laughs> and up next on the Readout: new subpoenas late today from the January 6th committee involving the phony elector scheme. Plus.
6: If Russia does invade in the days and weeks ahead, the human cost for Ukraine will be immense. And the strategic cost for Russia will also be immense.
1: President Biden puts Russia on notice and prepares the American people for the economic fallout here at home if Russia invades Ukraine. Also, Congressman Ilhan Omar joins me on the fight against no-knock warrants in the aftermath of the killing of Amir Locke in her district. And tonight's absolute Works is now actively celebrating, even selling mementos of his misconduct. And no, we're not talking about Trump. The readout continues after this.
4: we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. The January
1: 6th committee today issued a new round of six subpoenas targeting witnesses and participants in the scheme to send forged slates of fake Trump electors to Congress. Among them is Trump's director of election day operations, Michael Roman, who, according to the committee, managed the effort to appoint fake electors. They also include Mark Fincham, who's now running for secretary of state in Arizona, as well as the state's GOP chairwoman, Kelly Ward, who acted as a fake elector. It's the latest sign of progress from the select committee, which has now interviewed more than 500 witnesses. But while they're working methodically, they are up against the big lie that continues to threaten free and fair elections in this country. Case in point is one Tina Peters, a 2020 election denialist and conspiracy theorist, who today announced that she is running for secretary of state in Colorado. Peters is currently the clerk of Mesa County, where she stands accused of pulling off an inside job, basically, which compromised the county's voting infrastructure. Peters was sued for allegedly allowing an unauthorized individual to update the county's voting system, which resulted in public disclosure of state-guarded passwords. Those passwords were then used by, an unknown, by unknown parties to access the equipment. Peters claims the breach was really an effort to back up the system, but a judge prevented her from overseeing local elections last year. And there's also an ongoing criminal investigation. This is the person who now wants to oversee elections for the whole entire state of Colorado. Oh, and did I mention that Peters was arrested for obstructing a search warrant in an unrelated investigation into whether she illegally recorded a court hearing? A police body camera shows that she wasn't exactly cooperative while being detained. Here are two short excerpts from the longer video.
7: Let's go, Do not
0: Oh
3: against us. I'm not pulling against you. Let okay, go of stand me. stand
0: up like an adult.
8: Shut up. What an ass thing to say to me.
1: Hmm. Interestingly enough, she was neither tased nor thrown to the ground or worse. Funny how that works for some people who argue with police in America. I should also note that just after her arrest, Peters participated in a town hall forum for conspiracy theorists who believe the 2020 election was stolen. Because of course... Peters is just one of dozens, if not hundreds, of similar candidates who are now seeking crucial state offices that would have the power to distort the results of elections around the country. And electing those candidates would be like putting the fox in charge of the proverbial henhouse. With me now, Kurt Bardella, advisor to the DNC and DCCC, and Glenn Kirchner who is back with me. Oh, Kurt. <laughs> this is interesting. So somebody like uh, this, this, <laughs> oh this woman— I mean, it really literally is the foxes saying, put me in charge and <laughs> the, the hens will be fine. Your thoughts?
3: <laughs> oh, my God. Joy, I'll tell you, I mean, the first thing that did stand out to me was like, wow, if she <laughs> were not white, I don't think she would have been standing very long in that interaction with the." the, the and this is the party of law and order. Let's let's remember that they respect police, of course. Um, this is exactly the danger of what January 6th has precipitated on the rest of our country going forward. This is someone who is unfit to be in office. This is someone who just last week was at a meeting of a known militia group that applauded for the death of her opponent, the current Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold, to the point where the Denver uh, Post did an editorial today saying that The current secretary of state should have the same security detail as the governor because of the threat posed by this type of inflammatory rhetoric. It's the natural conclusion of the type of rhetoric we're seeing from the right. It will lead to violence. It will lead to threats. It will lead to an unsafe and unstable situation where elections in this country will no longer be a violent, free situation. That is incredibly dangerous. And there are 22 secretary of state races going on in 2022. And Mm -hmm. every single one of those is pivotal because Republicans have have a plan there's a reason why this lunatic announced her candidacy on steve bannon's (laughs) podcast why steve bannon called her a hero on that very podcast someone who breaks laws who's unfit to even oversee the jurisdiction she currently has this is a dangerous situation and we all need to pay attention to these under ballot races
1: well i i I am curious glenn very quickly before i want to talk subpoenas but is it legal to run for office while you are currently under criminal investigation i guess that's okay to do
5: Yeah, there's no prohibition if you're under investigation. But, you know, the problem here, Joy, is the big lie is part and parcel of the big crime. Right. The big lie is the election was stolen. The big crime is a conspiracy to commit an offense against the United States by corruptly overturning the election's results. Because nobody has been held accountable for the big lie, which fueled the big crime. Um, Mm -hmm. That gives permission to all of the little liars out there to continue to spout the big lie, hoping to fool the gullible and, and win their election. So, you know, now telling the lie in isolation is not necessarily criminal. But when Donald Trump and Mo Brooks and Rudy Giuliani and John Eastman and Don Jr., told the big lie on January 6th that your vote has been stolen. You need to go down there, kick you know what, and take names, fight like hell or you won't have a country anymore, go down there and stop the certification of the election. That big lie was a crime because it was inciting the insurrection. And here's the thing, Joy, unless and until the Department of Justice brings charges against somebody other than the foot soldiers who Donald Trump set on the Capitol to stop, the certification, Um, we're going to have the little liars running around the country telling the big lie, and they're going to do it with impunity. But the minute charges come to the command structure of the insurrection, I predict all of the little liars will shut their mouths because now they'll see there are consequences to continuing to tell the big lie. And that's what we're still all waiting for, some accountability.
1: Yeah, indeed. Let's go through some of these subpoenas. So, so there's, this is one subpoena. This is for Trump's Director of Election Operations, Mark Michael Roman. And so the select committee says they're in possession of communications reflecting your involvement in a coordinated strategy to contact Republican members of state legislatures in certain states and urge them to, quote, reclaim their authority by sending an alternate slate of electors that would support Trump. Uh, the subpoena to Laura Cox, who is the former chair of the Michigan Republican Party, says you were reportedly a witness when Rudy Giuliani pressured state lawmakers to disregard election results in Michigan and when he said that certifying the election results to be a criminal act. And last one, this is Mark Fincham, who is now running for secretary of state in Arizona. Um, and he said, he, well, he he marked the one year anniversary of January 6th by tweeting, the real insurrection was run by the sitting secretary of state, blah, 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 Arizona. Um, let, let's go through what these subpoenas mean, Glenn, very quickly. Um, If you're starting now to get to the, it seems like we're now in the repeat phase where it's clear that the conspiracy involved pretending that you could send this alternate slate and seat that one instead of the real one. Would it be a crime for somebody to be such an elector, a fake elector? Because it doesn't seem like that in and of itself is illegal. (laughs) Oh, it is,
3: and, and
5: I think I can quote uh, Michigan State Attorney General Dana Nessel, who said these fake okay. collectors committed crimes. They committed federal crimes, which is why a number of state AGs have referred them to the feds for criminal uh, investigation and possible prosecution. But they also violated state law. Now, yeah. I happen to believe that these these crimes are most appropriately handled by the feds, by the Department of Justice, but. If we don't start to see some movement, there is nothing precluding the state yeah. authorities you know, uh, from digging in and bringing charges against these fake electors. You can't certify that you are the yeah. duly appointed elector and you are authorized by law to cast your vote for the loser of the election without having criminal responsibility for violating election laws. So, yeah, it looks like now the, the House Select Committee is working its way. Um, kind of up the chain, or at least to one of the spokes of the hub and spoke conspiracy. And, you know, this is taking things to the next level.
1: Yeah. And, Kurt, you know, the, the danger, of course, here is that what a lot of these states are doing is they're trying to make it legal. They're trying to pass laws that say, you know, well, if we're not happy with the results of the election, we'll be authorized to change them. And unfortunately, we don't have a Supreme Court that seems inclined to stand in the way. So I guess the worry, as somebody who's advising these uh, candidates' committees on the Democratic side, how deep is the worry that these laws will stand because the Supreme Court lets them and the people who did this and it's criminal now – We'll do it again in 2024, let's say, and it not be illegal by state law.
3: Yeah, I think I think this is why we're seeing, like, at the DNC, Jamie Harrison has authorized a 20 million dollar investment in the 2022 midterms. Which again, it's it's a significant amount of money being spent in what is technically an off year election for something like the DNC that usually focuses only on the president and the president's reelect. But I think everyone in the Democratic Party organizationally is seeing that these races, these situations are vital to the health of democracy. We can't afford to sit two years out and wait for the presidential now. I mean, I think I said earlier, there were 22 Secretary of State races, There are actually 27. And when you look at the mm-hmm. states that are in play, Arizona, Georgia, Kansas, Nevada, Colorado, these are all states that have a real impact on what might happen in 2024. And yeah. now the Republicans are trying to play this game, as you said, to try to legalize their illegal activity. And if that happens, we have got to be ready with as many resources as possible to get the secretary of states, these attorney general candidates across the board, across the finish line, so we have a fair and free election.
1: Yeah. Don't skip the secretary of state box on that ballot. You have to vote all the way down the ballot. Kurt Bardella, Glenn Kirshner. Thank you both very much. So ahead. President Biden warns that a Russian invasion of Ukraine and the resulting sanctions on Russia could have a significant impact on us here at home. Stay with us. President Biden made an appeal for diplomacy in an address to the nation this afternoon on the crisis at the Ukrainian border. The buildup of tens of thousands of Russian troops has stoked fears that Russia could push further into Ukraine, which it already partly occupies. Although Russian President Vladimir Putin said his country has decided to partially withdraw some troops gathered near Ukraine and has denied wanting to invade, skepticism remains, showing the value of his word. President Biden said the White House has not verified that the Russian military units are returning to their home bases. In fact, Biden said that those Russian troops remain very much in a threatening position. Here's more of what the president had to say.
6: As long as there is hope of diplomatic resolution that prevents the use of force and avoids incredible human suffering that would follow, we will pursue it. An invasion remains distinctly possible. Russia and the United States share for global stability, for the sake of our common future, to choose diplomacy. But let there be no doubt, if Russia commits this breach by invading Ukraine, responsible nations around the world will not hesitate to respond.
1: Joining me now is David Rothkopf, columnist for The Daily Beast and USA Today and host of the Deep State Radio podcast, and Naveed Jamali, editor-at-large at Newsweek and a former FBI double agent. Thank you both for being here. David, I'm going to start with you because um, it, it does appear that whatever it is that President Biden is doing, you know, just sort of blasting out like every possible thing that Russia could do, releasing intelligence, sort of taking away their element of surprise, as one of my producers very brightly said. Um, It it appears that it's working. I mean, it does look like a Russia walk back. What are you seeing?
0: Well, we don't know whether it's a Russia walk back. Certainly uh, Putin saying that he's going to deescalate, you know, is a little bit of hope in it. But he said that before and he hasn't done it. He actually did the opposite. So we're gonna to have to stop and see, does he pull back? How many troops does he pull back? How far does he pull back? What kind of capabilities does he limit at the border? Uh, and does he really embrace the option of diplomacy? Uh, but you know, Putin has discovered that he has a, uh, an opponent on the other side in, in Joe Biden and in NATO uh, that is one step ahead of him, that is unified, that is, you know, responding forcefully on the security side, that is leaving open the diplomacy side. Today, he spoke to the Russian people. He addressed the concerns of the American people. They've gamed this out. And, you know, as far as this is played out so far, um, you know, it, it, it certainly looks like the West is ahead of the game and Putin doesn't have many very good options.
1: Yeah, and you know, Naveen, you and I talk about this a lot. The sort of, you know, we can keep having the re- what does Putin want conversation and sort of psychoanalyze him all day long. It is kind of a fascinating conversation. But it just seems the rational mind would say, you know, you you, you don't have like a powerful economy, man. You know, you're you're pretty much, as David just said, the West is standing up to you what do you have to gain? Right. It's hard to imagine what he would have to gain by taking on those sanctions. Yes, there would be some economic pain on our side, which President Biden did say if this happened, you know, there'd be some economic pain. Oil prices could spike. But it's hard to see what
7: Putin would gain from further invading Ukraine. Your thoughts? Yeah, I agree. I think that there is a reality, which is Putin is a master manipulator. I mean, that's just what he is. He knows how to manipulate everyone, including the Western press. And what I think what he's seeing is that the United States is what he's always felt is, look, when I was dealing with the Russians, uh, the Cold War for them never ended. When they landed in JFK and got off that Airflot flight, they were behind enemy territory. This is the way they think. So what they're going to look at for the United States going forward is this idea that the more you can harm the United States, the easier it is for Russia to act unilaterally. Biden did a tremendous job in sort of rallying some strength here to push back on Russia to get the idea of sanctions to really speak to to Vladimir Putin to make the cost of doing this, at least right now, pretty high, that he wasn't willing to pay for it. But I worry that there's an election coming up in 2024. I worry that while Biden released and made very clear about this false flag operation, I still think that Americans don't understand how active the Russians are here in the United States and how vulnerable our democracy is to them and how much they seek to use asymmetrical warfare, not to get into direct military confrontation with us, but asymmetrically to harm us, to make it harder for us to be that check to Russian authoritarianism, to Russian expansionism. And frankly, whether Putin invades Ukraine or not, that danger will exist as long as he is the president of Russia. Yeah, I mean, there was a story that broke uh, earlier today about them planting, you know, directly sort
1: of the Kremlin planting information and, you know, sort of digital media and even like investment related media here in the U.S. It's pretty extensive. David, you know, one of the things that Putin does appear to be doing is trying to sort of tit for tat us in a way. Maybe you could explain it differently Um, and sort of increasing his sphere of influence our hemisphere, right, saying I'm going to increase his relationships with Bolsonaro and Brazil, you know, back to Cuba and Venezuela. Is that a kind of sort of psychological tit for tat where he's saying if you're going to play in my uh, sphere of influence, then I'm going to play in yours?
0: Well, it it seems that way, although we're not playing in his sphere of influence. uh, He is threatening Europe uh, and uh, he is the aggressor. We're not moving uh, towards him. We are Maintaining lines that have existed for a long time. I think he's reliving a sort of Soviet fantasy that he's got, uh, you know, and he remembers, you know, the Cuban Missile Crisis and he thinks, well, we can reach out to the Venezuelans or we can play footsie with Bolsonaro, the corrupt, failing president <laughs> of uh, Brazil. But the, but the reality, of course, is uh, that's not going to take. He's got an economy the size of Italy. Uh, it's not doing very well. His generals don't like his plan in Ukraine. There's a democracy movement. There's a Navalny trial going on now. He's mm-hmm. got a lot of issues at home. Uh, and while I agree with the assessment that uh, Russia is going to be a threat to us uh, for as long as Putin is in charge, I, I think the one thing that we can take away from this crisis is that he has galvanized the West again. They know he's a threat. And they are gonna be mobilized against it uh and 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 leery of it uh for, for
1: the foreseeable future. Yeah. Well, and hopefully he'll eventually get it. And Ukraine does not want you, man. They, they, they like where they are. They, they, they want to be part of Europe. You know, get over it. Uh, David Roth, Rothkoff, Naveed Jamali, thank you both very much. Still ahead. Lawmakers are taking a closer look at no-knock warrants after the killing of Amir Locke in Minneapolis. Minnesota Congresswoman Ilan Omar is working on new legislation restricting the use of those warrants. And she joins me next. We'll be right back. When bipartisan police reform negotiations fell apart last year, one of the sticking points was the police's use of no-knock warrants. Those are the warrants that allow police to barge into someone's home unannounced. The procedure has led to countless unnecessary deaths, including Breonna Taylor, who was killed by police during a botched raid on her apartment in 2020. And most recently, it was used in the death of 22-year-old Amir Locke, who was shot by police nine seconds after they broke into the apartment where he was staying, sleeping on a couch. It happened in the District of Minnesota Congresswoman Ilan Omar, who will be introducing legislation in his name that proposes new restrictions on no knock warrants. And Congresswoman Ilan Congresswoman Omar joins me now. And so, Congresswoman, explain your legislative idea. What would it do and what would it change?
8: Well, it's great to be here um, with you, uh, Joy. Uh, the legislation is to restrict and ban uh, no knock warrants. We are actually engaging in a process. To try to have a conversation with the judiciary committees, both in the House and the Senate, talk to legal experts to try to make sure that we have legislation that can be pre-negotiated so that it does have the chance of passing and saving lives. So that is the key,
1: right? The chance of passing and saving lives, because the House has proved very adept at passing progressive and really important legislation that would really help a lot of people. And then it goes to the Senate to die. Um, so what is the strategy to ensure that this piece of legislation can actually either get through with, you know, some special procedure, which uh, certain senators are so they never want to use for anything except for, you know, I guess, cutting taxes, to rich people or getting 60 votes.
8: Yeah. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, a lot of people uh, already think the no-knock warrants and rates are unconstitutional. They not only lead to property damage, trauma, but often are deadly and take lives. Uh, there is a, a big effort um, by a lot of people uh, in in Congress that have tried to work uh, on policy in, in this regard. Um, and I think that we have an opportunity to have these conversations and introduce legislation um, that will ultimately uh, guarantee uh, no lives are taken and no judges are issuing these no-knock warrants. Right. And I know that there are some issues that do tend to cross partisan lines, things like property
1: seizure, you know, which some libertarian uh, members of the United States Senate and House also oppose, things like that. So on this particular bill, would this bill make no-knock warrants de facto illegal or would it simply change the way that they are allowed?
8: So we are looking to ban no-knock warrants. Uh, there is conversation about you know, whether uh, there should be exceptions if um, evidence could be destroyed um, or if law enforcement can actually make the case that there will be bodily harm to them or others on the premise if they did do um, uh, a knock. Uh, and so these are the kind of conversations that we are having um, to make sure that any legislation that we introduce not only serves the purpose of constitutionally protecting people's ri- lives um, and saving lives, uh, but also um, can pass. You know any sort of. Uh, complications it might eventually meet uh, in the courts. Um, As you know, there are legislation uh, that was introduced in the Senate by people like Ron Paul and others that outright ban it. Um, They have not had uh, folks in support of that legislation. Uh, And so what we are trying to do with the support of Amir Locke's family with Brianna Taylor's family and others is to introduce legislation uh, that can have a broad support um, and ultimately can do what it needs to do in saving lives. We know um, just how dangerous, right, and unconscionable uh, these deaths have been um, to to so many uh, community members Uh, and it's really important legislators that we engage those uh, that have been impacted to make sure that we are introducing legislation that will ultimately lead to a good outcome for everyone. Uh,
1: and if you could, you mentioned, I mean, Amir Locke, obviously, and they're endorsing uh, this idea. How is his family doing and how is their search for justice going?
8: Yeah, so I was just recently, um, uh, at a a community event um, for another senseless death. uh, This young promising kid, uh, Deshaun Hill, um, 15 years old quarterback was killed, and Amir Locke's cousin um, was also there uh, as part of this healing circle that we had at North High School in North Minneapolis. Um, and I had a conversation uh, with her um, about the wishes of the family, and we continue to have a conversation with their lawyers uh, to try to figure out, um, you know, a, a possible path forward. I know that his funeral um, is is tomorrow. Uh or the day after. And um, and you know, I mean, our community is traumatized. This family is yeah. traumatized. We've been through quite a lot. Um, yeah. and this is the same police force that killed George Floyd. They've killed another young man who's innocent. Um, Amir Locke uh deserved to be alive yeah. today. He deserved the opportunity um, to grow old uh, and be part of his family and his community. And these kind of tragedies need to end. And we have to do something um, in regards to legislation to change the outcome.
1: Indeed, indeed. Uh, Congressman Ilan Omar, thank you for making the attempt to do just that. We really appreciate you being here this evening. All right. And stay right here uh, for tonight's absolute worst. Because, yes, sure, we have all come to accept a little showboating in Congress but not when it comes to threatening our national security. We'll be right back. Missouri's Republican Senator, Josh Hawley, is trying his hand at insurrectionist grift. Not content to just be the face of sedition, egging on the January 6th rioters with his fist pump that day. The Hawley campaign is now trying to cash in selling coffee mugs featuring the image and the words, show me strong, a bad play on the state's official motto that also kind of sounds like a plea to the Lord. Please, show me strong. In a campaign email advertising his new knickknack, the mug is described as made in America and quote, the perfect way to enjoy coffee, tea or liberal tears. Tip your waiter. It's fitting that triggering the limbs would be the campaign promise from the senator, apparently proudly owning the violence he instigated that day which has now officially been declared legitimate political discourse by the GQP. He told the Washington Post last year that he had no regrets because, as he put it, some of them were just there to protest. He even claimed that it was mean to put everyone in the same bucket just because they chanted hang Mike Pence, calling it a slur on the peaceful protesters, you know, the ones who weren't saying hang Mike Pence exactly. But anyway, it seems the Holly campaign's I supported a coup merch might not be quite as advertised. Republican Congressman Billy Long recently snubbed for an endorsement by Holly in the race to the bottom for Missouri's other Senate seat, pointed out that the mugs actually say they're made in China. In a normal world, that could be a problem for Holly since tough talking on China is one of his pet issues, aside from being the self-proclaimed defender of American manhood against video games and porn, weirdly. For example, last week, Holly said China, not Russia, is the biggest enemy of the United States, while once again arguing that the Biden administration should abandon support for Ukraine joining NATO, a stance that previously got him called out by Republican Congressman Adam Kinzinger as one of the worst human beings and a self-aggrandizing con artist. And while that assessment is 100% spot on, there's more. While Josh Hawley scolds the Biden administration for the evolving Russia-Ukraine crisis, part of an ongoing fit to over the administration's withdrawal from Afghanistan, he's also blocked consideration of several top Defense Department imp- imp- appointees, including Russia expert Celeste Wallander to become the Pentagon's top international security official. So for actively stonewalling the Biden administration's appointments with critical experience in the midst of an international crisis, and also for other just absolute terrible Senator Josh Hawley is tonight's absolute worst. That's tonight's readout.